Good. Good morning. Awesome. Well, I got one more announcement. Uh, my wife back there, she actually, we are doing a week and a half to have our little baby boy. So very excited for that. Um, there's another family in our church, uh, just sitting down right over there, Jen Ross, hello, uh, who was due a month after us, but she beat us to the punch. And uh, little Lou was born and uh, is in the ICU, but doing good, doing stable. So just want to pray a blessing over little Lou, uh, a new life in our church. And uh, let's pray for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Jen and for Ken Ross. Lord, we thank you for this new life. Uh, Lou, who's come into this world, we pray, God, that you would protect him, Lord, that you would cover him, Lord, that you'd give peace to uh, the whole family's hearts, Lord. We lift him up to you as a church, Lord, and we thank you for that new life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so excited to be in God's word with you guys today. If you have your Bible, open them up to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be picking up in the middle there at verse 26 today and going to the end of the, not the end of the chapter, to verse 42. So, as Rob said, I'm just going to say it coming right out the gate. He's already said this, is that I believe today, through God's word, we are going to see the humanity of Jesus on full display. We're also going to see his deity because Jesus is 100% God and 100% uh, man, and you think, how does that add up? Well, he's God, okay? <laughs> and, and he was fully man as he came to the earth. I love what we're saying that um, he left heaven to come to earth because he, he didn't want heaven without us. And we're going to see that today. And so without any more introduction, let's read the first portion of our text today, starting in the middle of chapter 14 at verse 26, where we read, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So Jesus has just had a meal with his disciples this night that he spoke those words. The meal that they had was to celebrate Passover, this uh, remembering and celebrating as God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. And they were in a large upper room in the city of Jerusalem, and the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. They were all reclined around a low table, and Jesus told them that there would be one among them who would betray him. And as the disciples hear Jesus say that, we recall from last week something of a change that had occurred in the disciples. These men that were constantly bickering with one another all began to look within themselves and ask the question, is it I? And we were impressed because here they were realizing in themselves their own capacity for sin and betrayal. They had this introspective awareness that I believe was good, and they understood that Jesus, they, they, they didn't want to deny him. 
And, and Jesus, immediately after this, introduced and instituted what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. We had a wonderful time last week receiving communion because we have this tension where we realize our fallenness before God and that we have sin and we've got that awareness, but we also recognize that because of the bread and the cup, which represents the body and the blood of Jesus, that there is a remedy for sin. And the disciples are beginning to see these promises of the new covenant come about. And so when they had sung a hymn, they left the upper room and they went to the Mount of Olives, which was just outside the city of Jerusalem. Judas at this point breaks off from the group. We are told that Satan had then entered him to go and do what he was going to do, which was to kill the Messiah. So Jesus will be betrayed by Judas, but Jesus also realizes that in a certain way, all of his disciples will betray him, that, that they all will abandon him. And so when the disciples ask that question, is it I, the answer is kind of, yeah, you will all deny me. And in verse 27, Jesus recalled a prophecy to them from Zechariah chapter 13, verse seven. And it said that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. Jesus tells them very plainly this prophecy that will speak of how he will be crucified and that because of the disciples' fear and weakness, they will abandon Jesus and leave him alone to die on the cross. And if you go back and look in Zechariah chapter 13 in the previous verse that what is quoted, there's another prophecy about Jesus and it says this. If one asks him, what are those wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. How powerful is that? We know that Jesus came into this world to be a friend of sinners. We learn in John's gospel that there is no greater love than this than for a friend to lay down his life for a friend. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. And he called his disciples his friends. Even though they would deny him, even though they would betray him, he called them his friends. And he calls you his friend. And it's his friends. It was in their house that he received these wounds. And we know what those wounds accomplished. See, but the story keeps going. Jesus then goes into the hopeful portion of prophecy when he says in verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus told his disciples beforehand that he would be betrayed, that he would be arrested, that he would be crucified, but he also promised beforehand that he would be raised up on the third day. He's already told them this prediction three times. This is as if it's a fourth time that Jesus is telling his disciples what he had come to do. Seems as though still they're kind of missing it though be those types of people where we repeatedly hear the gospel one two three four five times you hear the gospel again and again and in some way you continue to still 
miss what Jesus has accomplished for you. So I pray today that you would hear the gospel again. Maybe it's for the hundredth time. I say this to myself all the time and I'll say it to you. You will never outgrow your need for hearing the gospel. And we will always preach the gospel in this church. I will preach Jesus Christ and him crucified because therein lies the power to save. And so Jesus told these things to his disciples, but the disciples weren't gonna have any of it. They thought differently. And we see in verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. (laughs) You know, Peter has this way of kind of flipping on a dime pretty regularly in the Gospels. He went from, is it I, and introspective, looking at his own weakness, to now saying, oh, I will not deny you. They, those other guys, yeah, they're going to deny you. Me? No, not me. I will not deny you. And Peter at several times does that flip-flop where he's going between the flesh and the spirit. At times he gets it so right, and then other times he just gets it so wrong. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, I think you can say, I know what that's like. Sometimes we do. We, we, sometimes we're in the spirit, and we get it so right. And then other times we're just in our flesh, and we get it so wrong. And that is where Peter is. And as Christians, we live in these bodies. And we know that in these bodies, they're not yet glorified. And Paul describes something going on within every single Christian. He he calls it something of a war. Where the flesh is waging war against the spirit and vice versa. Because the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the spirit's desires are against the flesh. They are in opposition to one another in order to keep you from doing what you want. Because what do you want to do? I mean, if you're here at church today, I I think I know what you want to do. You want to please Jesus. You want to live for him. You want to live fully surrendered to the Lord. And yet we resonate with Peter that often we have this war and this conflict within us where we are walking in the spirit and then we turn and we walk in the flesh. Peter wants to please Jesus. He wants to please him by saying the right things and doing the right things. But Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows himself. And Jesus knew that Peter would not live up to his words that night. And isn't that true for all of us as Christians? We don't always live up to our words. The things we want to do, we don't do. And the things that we don't want to do, we end up doing. Paul says at the end of Romans 7, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God that through Jesus Christ there is now no longer condemnation. Because even though we find ourselves in this waffling tension of in the flesh and in the spirit, we see that Jesus keeps us and that he loves us even in spite of that. And Jesus knew what Peter wanted, but Jesus knew that Peter would end up that very night in verse 30. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice you will deny me three times so peter was totally known by jesus jesus knew that peter would go and warm himself by the enemy's fire in the roman courts jesus knew that while he was there there would be this 
little girl who would come and say, hey, aren't you one of those disciples of Jesus? And he would deny it. He would actually begin to curse the name of Jesus, basically saying, I don't know the man, he's little of Jesus. And then this moment of conviction comes into the heart of Peter when he hears a rooster crow twice. And these words of Jesus that Jesus knew would happen all along strikes Peter's heart and he leaves there so distraught because he knows that Jesus was right that Peter did deny him. If you know the rest of the story, we know that Peter was restored. We're gonna get into that later in the Gospel of Mark, but I want you to see now in verse 31 that he says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples, (sighs) wow, this, um, This moment that we're going to see today is so powerful. I'm sorry. Um, It's powerful. We're going to see Jesus just beautifully show his humanity. And and I feel so thankful to have a Lord like this. Look at what happens. After they left the upper room, Jesus and his 11 disciples, they they leave the city and they make their way to... um, this garden that Jesus used to love to go to. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives, a a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was this quiet little garden that had a bunch of olive trees. And they arrive into that garden and it's late into the evening. And the name of the garden, Gethsemane, um, has really great meaning and application just off the bat for what we're gonna see of Jesus. Gethsemane literally means oil press. And as I said, in this garden, there were a bunch of olive trees. And so from those trees, they would pull the olives and they would use these large stones and they would press out the oil from the olives. And oil was used for many different things. It was used for healing. It was used for nourishment. It was used for light. All these different uses of the oil from the olive as it was pressed out. And in the same way, Jesus is gonna have his life pressed out of him in this night, and from him, his, and we know that his life brings to us light and nourishment and healing just as the oil from the olive. And inside the garden, he tells his disciples to have a seat, and he takes from the 11, three of them, Peter, James, and John, and we see that in verse 33. These three disciples that went a little bit further with Jesus that night were the ones that got to experience sort of the inner circle of Jesus' ministry. They got to see Jesus transfigured. They got to see some miracles that some of the others didn't get to see. And Jesus was taking them because he was teaching them how to be watchful in prayer. He told the first group to have a seat and to pray and to keep watch. Then he takes Peter, James, and John, sets them at another station, a little deeper into the garden, and he says, sit here and pray and watch. And so Jesus now has two layers of disciples at different sections of the garden who are keeping watch as Jesus now goes deeper into the garden to find a place to pray. Yet while Peter, James, and John are walking with Jesus, they begin to notice something happening to Jesus. 
They, they begin to see something manifest in Jesus' flesh. You know, these disciples were used to seeing Jesus as the cool, calm, and collected Lord. He was the one where he was always just so purposeful in every action. He was always so resolute in what he was doing, and yet they are beginning to see in Jesus these signs of great distress. You know, something was up with Jesus that they had never quite seen before. This was the Jesus that walked on the water and calmed the storms by a single word. And yet as he's walking into this garden, Jesus is beginning to show signs of distress that almost look like Jesus is going into a panic attack. And it's in this moment when we're going to see in profound ways the humanity of Jesus manifested. Jesus, in this moment, still remained fully God, and yet his humanness is going to be so apparent to us. See, Jesus as a man, he experienced every wave of human emotion. I'm, I'm like, I don't know why I'm bubbling up with tears right now, but like, Jesus we remember when, when Lazarus died, that he groaned and he wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept, it's, but that word weep is like, he was like, it was guttural, like weeping. And Jesus is in this garden right now. We're told that he was troubled, and that speaks of the welling up of all of his human emotions. And then we're told that he was greatly distressed. Another way to put this is Jesus was stressing out. And in verse 34, we see what Jesus says about this trouble and distress that he was feeling. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. So these words should tell us something about the intense feeling that Jesus was having. He was troubled and distressed in his soul, which, by the way, his soul, I, I I hope you know that as a human being, you have a soul. I, I don't know if I can just right now convince you. I, I know I have a soul. I hope you know you have a soul. That is part of how God created us and made us. You have a soul because you're a human being created in the image of God. And when Jesus became a man, guess what? Jesus also had a soul. He was fully human. So Jesus had a soul, and in his soul, he was experiencing exceeding sorrow. And I want you to try to capture that in your own soul by, by whatever way you can. It causes us to kind of imagine in our minds right now a time in your life, in your own soul, where you were just so overwhelmed with, with pain and distress, where you know, those moments when you just kind of hit the ground and cry prostrate on the floor. I, I imagine that many of you guys have experienced that with perhaps a death of a loved one. Just a really trying moment in your life where you are just laid out on the floor. You know those moments in your life when it just feels like the wheels are coming off. That's where Jesus is at right now. And you need to see this moment of Jesus. We, we need to see in profound ways this humanness of Jesus because that is how Jesus wants us to see him. 
Yes, he wants us to see him as fully God. Without that, we would be lost in our sins. But Jesus also wants you to see him as fully human. And the reason he wants you to see him that way is so that you can understand that there is nothing that you are going through or will ever go through that Jesus doesn't understand. He gets it. He knows your pain because he experienced every emotion, every trial, every temptation known to man, Jesus endured, and yet without sin. And so he says to his disciples, Peter, James, and John, stay here, keep an eye out, and Jesus goes deeper into the garden. Because if there's ever been a time that Jesus needed to be with his Father, it's right now in this moment. We see that after going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. Jesus went a little deeper in the garden. It says in Luke's gospel about a stone's throw away. We're also told in Luke's gospel that Jesus was undergoing such distress that he was sweating what were like great drops of blood that were falling to the ground. Whether that was that his sweat was, was like you know, blood drop size, or actually that the capillaries on his skin were breaking and he was actually bleeding through his skin. But Jesus was undergoing such distress that we're even told that an angel needed to come to him and to strengthen him. And on the ground in the garden, Jesus prayed to the Father, and in his prayer, we're gonna find out why it is that Jesus was in such anguish of soul. Why is the Son of God in such agony right now? Read verse 35 to 36 with me. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So after stationing Jesus at these different points in the garden, we're told that Jesus' anguish was so severe that he fell on the ground. Doesn't say that he kneeled. Doesn't say that he bowed down. It said he fell. And that description of his posture should tell us what he was going through. He fell because he was undergoing so much stress that he couldn't, you know, be held up by his own legs. And now on the ground, he's coming before his father and he's praying to him that the hour might pass from him. Now, what is this hour that Jesus is talking about? This hour is the hour of his death. Jesus knew that he was going to die. Is that why Jesus is in such agony right now? Because he knows that he's gonna die? Is Jesus fearful in this moment of the pain that he will soon endure? Is this what Jesus, the Son of God, is in such anguish about right now? Well, let's think about it. Because, you know, we we shouldn't ever minimize the brutality of what Jesus endured on the cross. Think about what he went through, how he was mocked how he was punched. You know, they blindfolded him and and said, hey, punched him in the face. They prophesy, who hit you? They whipped his back open. In fact, we're told that he was beaten beyond an ability for people to really recognize him. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He carried a cross beam to that hill called Calvary, 
but he couldn't carry it the whole way because of, the, uh, because of just the exhaustion that had set upon Jesus from a sleepless night and being beaten by the Romans. Once he got to Calvary, they pierced his hands with nails and they pierced through his feet. They lifted him up on a cross and on the cross, you know, it's where we get our word excruciating. He was there hanging and his muscles were stretching out from dehydration and, and from being pulled by his limbs and he's just hanging there on the cross. Jesus suffered in that way on the cross and so is that what troubled Jesus? Yeah, of course, right? The physical pain that Jesus would soon endure is absolutely what troubled Jesus because Jesus was human. And as human beings, we have an aversion to pain and death. Don't we? You know, Jesus actually felt that. Think he wanted to experience that pain and that suffering? No. But can I suggest something to you? Yes, the, um, the physical pain that Jesus was soon to endure, yeah, absolutely he was feeling the weight about that. But, but beyond the physical pain, I also think it was the spiritual pain that Jesus understood that he would have to endure on being on the cross. And let me explain that a little bit. Jesus clues us into why he was just so distressed in verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus goes, and he's, he's fallen on the ground. He's talking to his dad. I mean, that's what he called his father. You know, no Jewish person up until this point had the religious audacity to call Yahweh Papa, Daddy. That's, that's what Jesus was calling him here. The Son of God was talking to his father having a father-son talk. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And that's a simple and true statement about the God of the universe. All things are possible for God. And Jesus was asking his father if he would remove the cup from him. Let it pass from me. And this cup that Jesus is talking about is referred to in the Old Testament several times. In Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, and it speaks of this cup that contained this strong mixture of high content alcohol, and God was gonna give it to the nations for them to drink, and when they drank of it, it was them consuming within themselves all of the wrath of God towards sin. And so it was this cup that would just bring the judgment of God's sin, uh, uh, of God upon sin, and here Jesus looked upon the cup, and this is immediately after Jesus presented the cup of the new covenant, which is in his blood. And he's looking at this other cup that he didn't even think about having presented to his disciples. It was the cup of wrath that the Father chose to present to the Son so that he would consume in himself all of the sins of the nations into the Son of Jesus so that he would absorb our sin, so that the penalty of our sin, which is death and the wrath of God poured out upon sin, would be fully consumed by Jesus so that you and I would never have to taste of the wrath of God towards sin. And Jesus is looking at this cup, and he knows what that cup will bring. He knows that God would look upon his son as if he was the sinner of all, so that he could look upon you and I as innocent ones. He could look at us as he looks at Jesus. Beloved, 
well pleased with. So Jesus is looking at this, realizing that his father is going to pour out this cup upon his son. He's saying, if there's any other way we can go through with this whole plan of salvation, can we do something else? That's what he meant by saying, let this cup pass from me. Now, I have a quick illustration. Let me grab this. I've always tried so hard to understand what Jesus um, bearing the sins of the world really means. <laughs> and, and I always come short in my thoughts and my words. But there was this one time and I was um, in Santa Barbara and my son had eczema and he would eat certain foods that he was, you know, he'd get his hands and stuff and his hand would become rashed and cracked and bleeding and there was this one season where it was just really bad. And we took him to his allergist and and the doctor was saying, you know, with eczema, one of the best things that your son can do is to uh, go to the beach and to play in the salt water. All the salt and the minerals and everything. I'm like, great, I'll take him surfing. <laughs> uh, but my son did not want anything to do with that. It was like wintertime. He didn't want to go to the beach with me. So what I did as a father is I wanted to heal my son's hand. And so I went down to the beach, and I was in the water with a five-gallon jug like this, and I was, you know, knees, you know, pants rolled up to my knees, and I was trying to collect a, a thing of water so that I could take it home and I could put it in a table so that my son could, you know, put his hand in there and play with it and that it could heal his hand. And as I'm out there, I'm trying to gather up, you know, maybe five gallons of water, and I had this thought that, you know, here's this vast Pacific Ocean. And, you know, my sin is maybe but five gallons of that Pacific Ocean of all the sins of the world. You know, maybe more than five gallons, but you know what I mean. Um, I always hope less than five gallons, but it's usually more than five gallons. And, and I'm out there and I'm gathering up this water. And then I had this other thought that here is the ocean and I began to think of God's love, and it reminded me of this great hymn called The Love of God. And the love of God goes like this. It says, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. You know what that's saying, right? That if the ocean were ink and the sky were parchment, there wouldn't be enough ink and parchment to write out the love of God. And here I am thinking about trying to heal my son's hand, and I'm thinking about the ocean of sin that was put upon Jesus at the cross, so that God the Father could lavish the ocean of his grace and his love upon humanity. And here I was trying to just fathom, you know, how many gallons are in the Pacific Ocean? Do you think you could tell? No. And in the same way, I struggle to be able to put into words and to put, be able to put into thoughts how vast is my sin? You know, we make too, too little of sin, you and I, don't we? Our sin is vast. And apart from Jesus, we're separated from him for all of eternity. 
But then I think about the vastness of God's love, that it's endless. The height, the breadth, the depth, the width, whatever, you know, of God's love, <laughs> it, it's impossible to fathom. And as we think about this, Jesus comes in verse 37 to 38. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, the disciples are there. They're supposed to keep an eye out, but what are they doing? Getting a little shut eye. They're, they're sleeping in this moment of greatest temptation and greatest trial. If you want to be prepared for trial and temptation, you've got to wake up. You've got to pray. Because that is what Jesus did. And, and Jesus called out Peter. He actually used his birth name, Simon. I'm sure that alarmed him. Because he wasn't, you know, no, Peter's the new man. Simon, you're, you're living in the old man right now, Simon. Wake up, Simon. You're Peter, remember? God does that. He calls us awake because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Go and learn what that means if you don't. Go and learn what that means. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know you want to watch. I know you want to pray. I know you want to read your Bible. I know that you want to be living fully surrendered to Jesus. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh will always soothe us to sleep spiritually. Our flesh will get us to rely upon ourselves rather than to rely upon the Holy Spirit and in prayer. If you want to learn what this means, go read Romans chapter 7, and don't stop there. You've got to get to chapter 8. And so Jesus wakes them up, and he says, stand with me. Pray with me. And Jesus goes back, and he does this three times. And he says the same words. So those same words, Father, if there's another way, let's do that. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And Jesus went and he prayed. Hebrews 5, 7 through 8 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. You know, he really prayed with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's the perfect model for prayer for us. That's how Jesus prayed, with cries and with tears, with reverence, because he knew that it was only God the Father who could save him from death. You know, it's not the emphatic cry I will not deny you. You know, all these other people, they're going to deny you. I will not deny you. That's not the emphatic cry that, that God listens to. You want to know the emphatic cry that God listens to? Not my will be done, but your will be done. That's the prayer that gains a victory. That's the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden in verse 41 to 42. And he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and taking rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And here we see Jesus, the Son of God, sort of get up. 
and regained that composure of resolute determination to go to the cross. He says, let's go. Get up. My betrayer is at hand. He goes into the garden, and you know, when, the, when Judas arrived there with all of the mob to arrest him, <laughs> Jesus just spoke, and they all fell back. Jesus had authority, and he had power, and he had anointing, and he was confident in the Father's will because he had spent all that time in prayer. You want to win victories? Pray. You want to have power and anointing? Pray. It's not, well, I won't ever do that. I won't ever sin in that way. No, that's not the prayer. The prayer is not my will, but your will be done, God. Understanding within yourself that that the flesh and the spirit wage war. Understanding that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Asking continuously for the Holy Spirit to anoint you and empower you to live the life that I know you actually want to live. And so Jesus prayed, and as we end here, I want to ask you a question. In your reading of the Gospels, do you ever see a recorded answer to Jesus' prayer of let this cut pass from me? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Do you ever see anywhere where there's a recorded answer, where the Father answers back to the Son? I haven't found it. The father was silent to that prayer. And so Jesus just knew, okay, this is what it is. And he went to the cross, which tells me something, you guys. It tells me that if we think that there's some other alternative way to salvation than Jesus going to the cross, that we, that's an affront to God. You know, Jesus said, if there's another way, let's do that. Was there an answer? No, there was not an answer. There is only one way to salvation, and it is through Jesus, the Son of God, who was fully God and fully man, who left heaven and came to earth and died on a cross for your sin and for my sin and for all the sin of all who would come to him and believe in his name when they repent of their sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. There is no other way for salvation. If there was another way, then the death of Jesus was not necessary, and if there is another way, then Jesus' prayer was not answered, and we're calling God a liar. What could be worse than that? And so we come to Jesus today, nearly 2,000 years later, understanding that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved by it, what is it? It's the power of God unto salvation. And this is the message that we preach. This is the message that you've heard today and you've been commissioned with to pray and to go and to declare this truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you, God, for your humanity, Jesus. We thank you that you understand every single person in this room. You know each person here better than they know themselves. 
And God, if we are bringing the real us to the real Jesus today, God, we all come humbly before you, confessing, Lord, that our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak, which is why we need your blood to cleanse us and then your spirit to empower us. I pray that upon my friends here today. Thank you, Jesus, that you made it possible for us to live in this way. You set the example, but Jesus, thank you that you are more than an example. You are a savior, and we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. As we enter into worship, I wanna give an opportunity right now for you to make a decision. You know, Jesus wasn't deciding whether he would have the victory of salvation when he was, uh, you know, having those crown, the crown of thorns pressed in his brow. He wasn't deciding the victory when they were opening up his back. He wasn't the deciding the victory as he hung with nails in his hands and a nail in his feet. Do you want to know when Jesus decided the victory? It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was by a simple prayer. And this is a prayer of salvation, if it's ever been a prayer of salvation. Not my will be done. See, to be a sinner is to say, my will be done. Me, 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 my will be done. But to have salvation is to say, not my will be done. I die to myself. To have salvation is to say, God, your will be done. In my life, now and forever. You can confess all of your sins to Jesus. He already knows them, and he already paid for them. They've been paid in full. Don't think that you've either sinned too much or your sin's not really that bad for you to come to Jesus. If you've sinned, you have fallen short of the glory of God and the penalty is death. But if you come to God, the gift is life. New life in the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus made a decision. He wasn't ashamed of it. He was firm and resolute. He said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And if you want to pray that prayer, just lift your hand over your head and say, not my will be done, your will be done. Praise the Lord. Amen. That is the prayer we pray. That's the prayer we go empowered with to say, God, not my preferences, not my will, Jesus. I want to live for you fully surrendered, empowered. So let's go out, church. Let's go reach the lost. Jesus made it all possible for us to do it. Let's go see people saved. Amen? Amen.